The scripture reading today is Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one in which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. 
So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. I kind of chuckled to myself this week because, um, you know, we've, okay, this year of prayer stuff, we want to be a church that prays. Um, that's kind of uh, my, I feel like it's my kind of single eye focus um, for the year. And uh, you're trying to find ways of like keeping that going, you know? So, you know, a, a few weeks ago, you're like, okay, well, this is where we'll, we'll go. We'll start, we'll get back into Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll do Ezra, that second section, and then that'll come to a close. And then Nehemiah is like, maybe we'll take a, a week to, to go back into prayer, maybe do some kind of topical thing on prayer. Um, and then uh, just this week, it's almost like the Lord's like, oh, you. Um, you I've put this on your heart, like, like the, the prayer stuff. That's, that's me for you. That's me doing that in, in you. It's not your idea. Um, and so even the, the text that we're in, he's like, don't worry about it. Like, I've ordained you to be here. This is exactly what um, you need to be doing. So, and it's all about prayer. It's funny, like the last, that Ezra section, so much prayer. The section today, um, we learned so much about, uh, about prayer. So um, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll, we'll look at Nehemiah. Um, uh, Father, would you, would you help us today? Um, Jesus, today's about you. It's about your glory um, it's about our joy. It's about us seeing you more clearly, Jesus. So um, would you do that for us this morning? Um, would, you, would, you, uh, would you make us more in love with you, Jesus? Um, maybe for someone the very first time, uh, maybe for someone uh, the 10,000th the time, um, just a, a stirring in our hearts, Lord. Um, thank you for what you're doing in our church. Um, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, the saga of the returning exiles continues. Okay, last week we wrapped up the book of Ezra. Um, you guys ready for Nehemiah? Yeah, woo. All right. Didn't expect that. Um, Nehemiah is awesome. You should woo because um, it's, it's, you should be excited. It's, it's amazing. Um, one minute recap for, for those of you who might just be joining us. Uh, we're, we're doing this series through it. Sorry, kids. Kids can go. Um, I always forget. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, we're, we're making our way through that. It's really meant to be one, one story. It's telling one overall story, a single kind of scroll uh, uh, telling that story. It's broken up into those three main stories, though, and these, these three waves of returning Jews, uh, returning from exile back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land. They've been in exile for 70 years before this because of their unfaithfulness to, to God and his covenant. Uh, but he is, he is, despite their unfaithfulness, he is remaining faithful to his promise and he's bringing them back. He's restoring them. It's pretty amazing and pretty exciting. Um, we, we, the, the first story was Ezra 1 to 6. Uh, it was about mainly this leader, Zerubbabel, a few others that lead the first return to rebuild the temple. Um, then the second story was Ezra 7 to 10 which is led by Ezra himself. He's focusing on rebuilding the community, which is all about teaching the Torah, teaching the law of God. Um, and this morning we begin the third story, uh, which is centered on Nehemiah, leading this third wave of returnees. And he is being sent to rebuild the city, to, to rebuild the city walls, uh, to, to repair the gates and all of those things and repopulate the, the, the city, okay? And... Um, to give you a sense of where we are in time, that, that first return uh, with Zerubbabel took place in 537 BC. Where we are now, Nehemiah's chapter, um, is 432 BC. So it's about 92 years after that first wave of returnees. So a long time has passed. More time has passed than they were in exile, 70 years in exile. Um, it, it's been a while. 
Um, and, and so if, you've, if you're even wondering, hey, why, didn't, why is Nehemiah only just now coming back? Um, it's because he wasn't born for the first return, okay? Here, here he is. Um, and the story opens up, and we're introduced to this guy called Nehemiah. Um, and, and rather quickly, we learn a good bit about him in the first number of verses. Um, it's Nehemiah, he says, son of Hakaliah. Uh, we don't really know anything about who Hakaliah is. Uh, so it seems like Nehemiah comes from a pretty ordinary Jewish family. Um, un- unlike Ezra, remember Ezra's introduction in, in chapter 7, which he has a very... Um, a pretty amazing family line. It goes back 16 generations all the way to Aaron. Pretty impressive. Um, Nehemiah's uh, genealogy, it's ordinary enough where it goes back one generation. He's like, here's his dad, and before that, you'll never have heard of them, so it doesn't really matter. He's very ordinary. Um, but, but here's this young Jew living in the Persian Empire in Susa, and, and it's the capital of the Persian Empire. And, and he, he tells us the, the date that this is taking place. It says it's the month of, of Shislev. That's, that's the ninth month of the religious Jewish calendar. Okay, more evidence that this is a, a Jew here. He uses the Jewish calendar. Um, and he says it's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. So this puts him about 13 years after Ezra's return. Um, Nehemiah was a Jew, born in exile, he, he lives in exile. His life is in exile. Exile is all he's ever known. Um, at the end of chapter 1, he tells us that he's the, the cupbearer to the king. He, he kind of mentions that at the end. I'll say a bit more about that. But basically, it's his job to choose the wine for the king and, and, and to, to, to taste it. Um, don't think of this as just like a scrub job, like he just takes a swig just in case he dies so the king doesn't. It's more than that. He's, he's almost like this dangerous sommelier or something like that, okay? He's, he, he's, he's choosing the wine for the king. He's serving the king. He, he's close to the king. He, he's one of the most known and trusted people to the king. And, and we learn straight away that even though exile is all he's ever known, Nehemiah still has this heart for his heritage. He still has this heart for, for his Jewish heritage, and we see this is the case because of this conversation that, that he lets us in on in verse 1. He says, while he was in Susa, the citadel, the Persian capital, that, that Hananiah, here's a guy, he says, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. And we don't know if this is his biological brother or if it's like a Jewish citizen, one of his kind of homies, or is it you know, just a, a, a fellow Jew, we don't know, but, but um, interestingly, that it's not the first time Hananiah's name is mentioned, and um, he, he's actually on the list that we just looked at at the end of Ezra, this list of guilty priests who had intermarried uh, at, uh, in the previous section, and um, if that's the same person or not, we're not 100% sure, um, but it's interesting that if it is, it's not really the point. Uh, the main thing we're meant to see is the conversation that Nehemiah has. Um, if they discussed anything else, like weather or sports or something, they might have, but we're not let in on that. Nehemiah wants us only to hear the main topic of discussion. And he says he asks them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So what's he asking there? He's, he's asking, hey, how's it going back in Jerusalem? There have been these two waves of exiles so far. How's everyone doing? How are you all getting on? Is the city rebuilt? Is it all well? Is it, is it, are we back? And they give him bad news. They tell him, well, the remnant there is in great trouble and shame, actually. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Things aren't good. Yes, the temple is rebuilt, um, it's not as good as it was before, but it's, it's there. Uh, the, the, the community is, is there, but, the, but they're hardly the, the kind of wholly set-apart community that, that, that they're meant to be. We looked at that last week. They, they've already started giving into the same sins that, that got them into exile in the first place. Maybe Hananiah's face blushes a little bit here, and, and he looks down because he, he was part of that sin. And, and the city walls, they say, are in ruins, leaving them open to attack. It's, it's not going well. And in verse 4, we get Nehemiah's response to this terrible news. As soon as he, he heard these words, he says, I sat down and I wept 
and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Who's that sound like? That's Ezra. Ezra does nearly the exact same response, right? Ezra sits and weeps. Maybe a little bit more. He's, Ezra's pulling his hair and his beard out. Nehemiah's not, not quite there. But it, it's nearly the exact same response to when Ezra discovers the sins of the community. And then, just like Ezra does, we're given this, this grieving prayer of Nehemiah. And before we look at that prayer, what is this telling us about Nehemiah so far? The main thing it's showing us is that Nehemiah has this deep concern for the glory of God. He has a deep concern about the glory of God. Think about it. Here's this man who was born in exile, and he's probably never been back to Jerusalem. It's, Jerusalem's a far, it, it's a long way away. Um, he, he has a very good job in the Persian palace. Um, he, he has every right to just settle in Susa, be a good witness for God there, but his overriding concern is for God's people and for God's city. And I have little doubt that, that Nehemiah had been taught this from an early age, and probably from his, grand, from his grandparents who, who had been carried off to exile in the first place, and then, and then by his parents. It seems like he has parents who do Deuteronomy chapter 6. They, they, they pass on uh, what, what God has stored up in their hearts, teaching their children as they walk down the road, as they go to sleep, as they get up. They, they've taught him about the Lord, about this covenant God who made promises to Abraham. They taught him about those, those great days of, of David and Solomon about the, the, the way the nation had, had turned its back on God and had been carried off into exile. He, he'd been told how, how a few, though, a, a small remnant, had remained in Judah. He'd been told how even, maybe even a few of his relatives had returned and began to rebuild the city. You see, the, the fact that he is asking about the remnant and who had survived the exile in the city, it tells us he's, he's keenly interesting, interested, isn't he? But, but he's far more than just interested. And, and we know this because of his response to that bad news that he hears. He hears that the walls have been broken down and the gates had been burned. When he hears that, he's, he's, he's devastated. He, he, he weeps and he mourns and he fasted. He doesn't just say, ah, that's a pity. Hate to hear that. And then go back to work. He, he is ruined by this news. Why? Why such a deep emotional reaction? I, I don't think he's, he's just upset that maybe his relatives are in trouble. He, he's, he's, I don't think he's just being sentimental about his heritage and his homeland. I don't think so. I, I think rather his response is, is actually all about God. And, and you get that from his prayer. Let, let's read his prayer again. Verse, uh, verse four, as soon as he heard these words, he sat down, he wept, he mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, here's his prayer, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
There's a lot we can uh, pull from that prayer. Um, but here's a couple things. Firstly, it shows us what is bothering Nehemiah. What's he so concerned about that it makes him weep and mourn and fast? He's, he's concerned for God's people, isn't he? He opens up his prayer by, by saying how great God is. This is Yahweh, the Lord God of heaven. He's, he's awesome. He's great. He's, he's faithful. He's loving. He's, he's steadfast. He, he keeps his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. But then he says, oh, oh God, hear this prayer. Keep your ears attentive, Lord. Open your eyes, God. There's, that, there's this desperation in his prayer, isn't there? He's desperate. Hear the prayer of your servant that I pray before you day and night. There's persistence. Day and night he's praying. And, and what is he praying? This, this is a prayer of confession, mostly. Just like Ezra, right? Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. It's interesting. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments. So here we go again, right? Just, just like Ezra, here's Nehemiah associating with the sinning community, with those who are in trouble. He's in Susa. He's 900 miles away from Jerusalem. That's a three-month journey, yet he is saying, we have sinned against you, O Lord. He's, he's concerned with the faithfulness of God's covenant people, which he is part of. Verse 10, he says, they are your servants, God, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. What's he talking about there? He's referring to the Exodus, okay? God, these are your people. They're your servants. You redeemed them by your great power. You brought them out of slavery by your great hand. That's, that's Jeremiah 31. That's, that, that's new covenant language there he's, he's, he's using. In Jeremiah 31, God said, I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. He's saying, remember that, God. Remember them, your people, yours. And then he ends his prayer with this request for mercy. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. He's talking about himself there. And to the prayer of the servants. So there, there's more people joining in, apparently. Who, who, fear to, to, who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Nehemiah is saying, Lord, Lord, would you help me today and grant me mercy in the sight of this man? That's a bold request, isn't it? Do you see his, his Luke 18, parable of the persistent widow, kind of praying here? Desperate, persistent, bold. Isn't that interesting? Why is he so bold? He, he's, he's, he's so bold because he's coming to God, asking for mercy, but what's he coming with? Nothing. He, he's coming empty-handed to God. Is praying that, that God will remember his covenant, that God will remember his faithfulness, even though we have been unfaithful, even though we have sinned against you, me and my father's house. He's praying God will help his servant. This is a bold request. It's a request based not on anything he's done, but on God's faithfulness alone, on God's grace alone. He said, we have sinned, we have been unfaithful, we don't deserve your kindness, He's coming empty-handed with these requests, but it's a bold prayer. What's, what's the basis of our prayers? Nothing that we've done. We boldly approach the throne of grace. Why? Because of his righteousness, because we have a, a, a high priest in heaven. So he's concerned for God's people, but why is he concerned for their faithfulness? Because of what their faithfulness was meant to do in the world. Just give God glory. Nehemiah has this deep concern, this burden for the glory of God, seen in the success and faithfulness of God's people. And his prayer is filled with scripture. And 
like I said, he's, he's quoting Nehemiah 31, uh, or Deuteronomy 31. He's quoting, there's a prayer of Joshua who, we won't get too geeky into it, but Nehemiah's like, if Ezra was this, this new Moses, Nehemiah is this new Joshua, but he is quoting that scripture. It's, he's letting it infiltrate his prayers. He's, he's reflecting back to the Exodus in his prayer. What's that tell us about who Nehemiah is? He's a man who's deeply concerned for the glory of God in the faithfulness of his people. And he, just like Ezra, is, is a man of God's word. He's a man of prayer and dependence on God. Are you getting this clear picture of who Nehemiah is? Here's a Jew living in exile with a pretty good life, a, a comfortable job. That's some of you. A, a, a people of God living in exile maybe have a pretty good job, but he has this, this deep burden, this deep desire in his heart for God's glory. This comes from God placing that desire there, but, but through knowing him in his word and being a man of prayer and dependence, he has this desire. He wants to see God's people restored, his city rebuilt, in order for God's covenant promises to come true, in order for God's glory to go forth. He's, he's kind of living in this now and not yet reality, right? And I love that you see the same kind of qualities in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're different people, and you definitely see that. One is a priest, and one is a, he's, he's a scribe, and one is a cupbearer to the king that turns into a, a governor and project manager. Ezra's this Bible nerd who essentially gets other people to take the Bible seriously. Nehemiah is essentially a project manner that, manager that, that uh, is sent to rebuild the ancient walls of Jerusalem. But, but, but both of them share this one quality. Their very first response to trials is prayer. Both Ezra and Nehemiah's knee-jerk reaction is to fall before the Lord in prayer. And as, as we make our way through Nehemiah's story, um, you'll see he's a pretty great leader. Not, not perfect, but, he, but he's pretty darn good. He's, he's actually quite smart. He's actually pretty savvy. He's a quick decision maker, but his initial response here is not to jump to action. His initial response is to pray. That, that's one of our goals this year, right? To, to, we don't want to let our doing for God as good and important as that is, we never want to let our doing for God to outpace our being with him. And I think Nehemiah understands that. And in, in fact, you'll notice that the, the very next scene, we'll, we'll get a bit of doing from Nehemiah. We actually get some action here. Ne Nehemiah, he finally gets to put into action what he's been praying for. And, and we're told in chapter two, verse one, that the month is Nisan, that that's about April for us. What month was it when he started praying? Shizlev, that's December. It's, he's been praying for four months, day and night. He's been praying for four months and he's waiting on the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't have this burden, he doesn't see this problem and then just pack his bags and head off enthusiastically to, to jump to work. No, he, he prays for four months and he waits for the Lord. Nehemiah understands that in his prayer, you see he, he understands that, that God redeems his people by what? You see it in chapter, 10, chapter one, verse 10. He said, you redeem your people by your great power and by your strong hand. He understands that. He understands that Nehemiah can have all the, the strong emotions that he wants. He, he can have all the, the good intentions in the world, but those things will achieve nothing without God's power. Without God's hand upon him, where is he? And so he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he, he waits for him. And God responds to Nehemiah's desperate, bold, persistent prayers 
four months later. Why? Why four months? At the end of his prayer, you see he uses that word today. He's asking for God's help today. But he has patience, and he keeps praying that. Why? I think God is testing his faith. He's he's strengthening Nehemiah's faith by asking him to keep praying. Keep coming to me. You need something that, that you don't have that I'm going to give you. Keep coming. Nehemiah is praying for help today. I wonder how many times in that four months did he wonder, God, are you listening to me? You, you, you kind of get hints of it in this prayer, right? right? Lord, keep your ears open. Keep your eyes open, Lord. Are you, are you hearing me? Do you ever think he was tempted to give up in those four months of praying? Probably. <laughs> like, if, if his prayers were anything like the prayers in the Psalms and, and Lamentations, which Nehemiah was probably very familiar with, he, he might have asked God, are you listening? Do you hear me? Listen, those are common biblical prayers. Those are prayers that God breathed out for his people to pray. Those are the prayers of someone who is waiting and being tested and whose faith is growing. But Nehemiah patiently keeps praying. And in chapter two, something happens. I love that he doesn't tell us that he's the king's cupbearer until the very end of his prayer. It's almost like he's like, oh, and by the way, I'm the king's cupbearer. That's going to be important information for the rest of this to make sense. Um, and then chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, four months later, he's with King Artaxerxes, who's enjoying a nice goblet of fine wine, as kings do. And so, Nehemiah is there serving him, because as he just said, he's the, the cupbearer. And something incredible happens, which seems ordinary to us when you just read it, but, but it's actually incredible. Um, Nehemiah writes, um, Now I, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not silk, sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then Nehemiah says, Then I was very much afraid. So that's weird. Why is he afraid? He, he's afraid because you weren't allowed to look sad in the presence of the king. To be in the presence of the king was a glorious privilege, and you were to look delighted. You were to look sad. You were to look happy. Even if you didn't feel happy, you had to look like you were happy when you were with the king. You could be punished for looking otherwise. You could be killed. But Ezra is so distraught that he can't help looking sad. Have you ever been around someone like that? Have you ever been that person you're so bothered that they, even if you're like tr- trying to pretend like everything's fine, it's obvious something is wrong. And Artaxerxes picks up on this and he says, why are you looking sad? You look like your heart's broken. Hence Nehemiah's fear in the moment, okay? Oh, you caught me. And so he says, let the king live forever, okay? Maybe this is a, maybe he's, uh, afraid, maybe he's showing honor to the king. Maybe this is like the Tisrock. May the Tisrock live forever. He, he shows honor to the king, but but he, he he chooses to be honest with him, and he tells him what's bothering him. He says, "Why should my face not be sad when my city, my, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire?" Then verse four says, "Then the king said to me, What are you requesting?'" I, we're left to kind of guess the drama of the scene, right? Uh, but I wonder what Nehemiah was feeling between verses three and four. B- between being caught out for looking sad and him telling the king what was making him sad, what was he feeling between that moment 
and the king's response. Was the king going to respond in anger? Was he about to punish Nehemiah? Was Nehemiah about to be killed? Maybe he was afraid because he'd seen this play out before and it wasn't good. But amazingly, shockingly, the king responds with, how can I help? What are you requesting? What's happening here? God is stirring. God's beginning to answer Nehemiah's prayers. Verse four is incredible. Read it again. It says, and the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So I think that shows you the king likes him, the king trusts him. I, I, I don't want a new, you're a pretty good cupbearer, how long are you going to be? And the king uh, So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. That's a cool job title, isn't it? The keeper of the king's forest, Robin Hood kind of guy. Um, That he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy And the king granted me what I asked. Why did the king grant him what he asked for? Well, he tells him right there. He says, for or because the good hand of my God was upon me. Because God is responding to my prayers. (laughs) The good hand of God was on him, just like it was on Ezra, another man of prayer, Remember what Ezra said to Artaxerxes, interestingly, in, in chapter 8, verse 22. He tells the king, the, the, the hand of our God is, good, is, is for good for all who seek him. It's for those who seek him, God's hand is upon them. And it's the same for Nehemiah. He is seeking the Lord. He's been praying for four months. And finally, this moment happens. Out of the blue, seemingly, but not out of the blue, because God is at work. And so, so Nehemiah goes for it, and he asks the king to send him. He asks for some pretty bold things, and the king shockingly says yes, and he grants his request. Why? For the gracious hand of God was upon Nehemiah. Isn't that amazing? Nehemiah is wholly dependent on God. He's been praying for four months, these persistent, bold, desperate prayers But don't miss out on that important prayer at the end of of verse four. You you may have missed it because it was so quick. Did did you see at the end of verse four? Right in between the king asking him, what are you requesting? And then between him answering the king and telling him what he's requesting, Nehemiah says, I prayed to the the God of heaven. That's it. Artaxerxes, what are you requesting? I prayed to the God of heaven, and then he responds to Artaxerxes. Like, he continues in his conversation with the king. He has a second to pray. Some people call these arrow prayers or or bullet prayers. Just a quick, God help me. That's an important prayer, isn't it? Like, Like that quick prayer, Nehemiah has been praying day and night for four months. Those longer, thought out, bold prayers, right? But this arrow prayer, this God help me, is just as powerful It's just as needed, just as heard by God. Do you you see what this is showing us about Nehemiah's life? Do you you see how he is living his life? It's what Brother Lawrence calls practicing the presence of God. It's what the Apostle Paul calls praying without ceasing. It's what Jesus calls abiding. Nehemiah, it seems, he is constantly aware of God's presence. 
even at his job here, even in the middle of serving wine to the king, even in the middle of a conversation, he is communing with the Lord. He's conversing with the Lord. He's constantly praying. You see, prayer, it isn't always just sitting in a quiet place, pouring your heart out to God for longer periods of time. Is it that? Absolutely. And you're missing out if it's not that at times, but prayer is also in the moment, in between lines of conversation, God help me. And guess what? God answers that prayer on the spot. Like a good father, he's been, he's been testing Nehemiah's faith. Nehemiah been, has been praying, Lord help me today. And God's been saying, keep praying, child. Keep, keep praying, keep coming to me. But, but what about right here, this quick prayer? We're not even told what the prayer is. Might not even have had words, but I, I bet you anything it was that prayer, God help me right now. God help me today. And Nehemiah then steps out in faith and he, he, he asks Artaxerxes, and what does God do? He, he answers his prayer. The, the good hand of God was upon him. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that so powerful? Do you see the, the, the Lord at work here? Like the story's not about Nehemiah. It's not about how great Nehemiah is. That the story is about how awesome God is and how at work he is, how he is stirring, how he is responding because of this man's prayers. God is stirring in the heart of this pagan king. He, he's, God is doing the impossible. He's, he's changing the king's desires. Another reason why this is so shocking and, and seemingly impossible is because Artaxerxes is doing a complete 180. He, he's doing a direct U-turn from what he decreed back in chapter four. Do you remember that? In chapter four, he made the decree for the work to cease, for the city not to be rebuilt. But, but here, he is completely changing his mind. Why does he do that? Because God is changing his mind because God was stirring in his heart. And why is God stirring in his heart? Because Nehemiah has been praying and praying and praying. Did you notice something about Nehemiah's prayer in chapter one? Did it, did it sound familiar to you at all? And his prayer in chapter one, it sounds an awful like Moses' prayer in Exodus 32. It's, it's almost nearly the exact same kind of thing is happening. Um, I won't go into all the details, but in Exodus 32, God sovereignly places Moses in a situation to see a problem and then to change that problem through his prayers. That's the point of that prayer guide that I gave you at the start. And the way that God does that, or the way that, that Moses does that is he prays God's promises back to him. And they're both doing that. Moses says, God, these are your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with, with your great power, with your mighty hand. Nehemiah prays the exact same thing. These are your people whom you redeemed with your great power and by your strong hand. Moses says to God, remember the promises, that you, your promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nehemiah says, remember what you said to Moses. Okay, it's not that God forgot these things, it's that God has put him in that situation to pray them. So, so the basis of these prayers are on God's promises. Do you see that? The basis of his prayer is on God's faithfulness. And Nehemiah has been praying those promises desperately and boldly and persistently and now God, just like he did in Mount Sinai with Moses, God is changing the situation. He is making Artaxerxes change his mind. He makes kings do U-turns. Credible. God's hand is upon Nehemiah because he is a man who is seeking the Lord, praying to the Lord, waiting for the Lord. Um, I think this is amazing. Isn't it? Like, this is the kind of church 
that we want to be, isn't it? This is the kind of power that I want to see released, don't you? This is the way God ordains for his purposes to unfold, usually through ordinary people like Nehemiah, who have a passion for God's glory, has, has this burden to see God's purposes come true, and God places him in this situation to see a problem and to have a heart that is broken because of that problem. And he wants to see God's kingdom come in that situation for the glory of God. And then he prays God's promises boldly, persistently, desperately. And then he waits on God to act. That's how God ordains for his purposes to unfold. He he is waiting for God to respond, isn't he? Sometimes it takes four months. Sometimes it takes 40 years. Maybe it even takes 400 years like Israel is in captivity in the first place. Maybe it's four seconds. But God is asking him to come to him. He's asking for for us to be a people of prayer and dependence and to wait for him to redeem by his strong hand, by his great might. Here's a word of warning for you today, though. Um, There's something weighty that this passage, I think, wants us to see. Because so far, it's pretty great, isn't it? Um, So far, I want this. Sounds amazing, sounds powerful, I'm in. We want, a peop- we want to be a people who do this, who pray, who abide with God, who continually commune with him, coming to him when we're weary and heavy laden, receiving that rest for our souls, right? I think Nehemiah would say, careful what you pray for. I, I think the passage has a holy word of warning for becoming a church that prays. Jesus does that, right? He gives these warnings. Hey, consider the cost before you jump in here. Does does God want this for our church? Does he want us to be a church that prays? Absolutely. I've never been more convinced of it. But but there's a warning that comes with this. And I, I think the warning is, hey, careful, because God will answer your prayers. And that's what happens here. God God responds and he answers Nehemiah's prayers. He gives Nehemiah what he's been crying out for. God's hand is upon him. He stirs in the king's heart. Artaxerxes gives him exactly what he's asking for. But, But read the rest of the chapter. And Nehemiah, he receives these letters. He makes his way to Jerusalem. He's given this armed escort. That's great. Nehemiah said, don't want it or Ezra says, I don't want it, Nehemiah takes it, either is fine. But what happens is he comes and he's not greeted with a welcome party. He's immediately greeted with opposition. Sanballat and Tobiah, these are the like, opposing baddies that will keep popping up in the story. They, they, they says they hated that someone was seeking the welfare of the people of Israel. Nehemiah is just following God, right? He's doing what God has so clearly ordained and placed in his heart. Look at what he says after he inspects the walls and the broken down gates. In verse 17, he says to to the people of Israel, he says, you see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. So what's he doing? He's sharing how God had been answering his prayers, how it had all played out, how he'd been praying and then God stirred in the heart of Artaxerxes and and this seems to have emboldened him, hasn't it? Let's do this. God is working. He's he's for us. And, And they say, yeah, let's do it. There's these like little Braveheart moments through, like he's like this, come on. They're like, yeah, let's do it. God is at work. He's really working all this all out. But verse 18, Sanballat and Tobiah, 
And now Geshem, it's growing, they jeered at us and despised us. They're mocking them. They despise them. They hate them. Verse 20, Nehemiah replies to them, Well, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So it seems through his prayers, God has given him a boldness, right? He's no longer just a cupbearer. He's now this, this bold governor overseeing this building project. Um, we don't know for sure, but it doesn't seem like he's had any past exp- uh, experience of ancient wall building. Um, it, I, it, I don't know if he has any leadership experience. He's a cupbearer. But God is giving him exactly what he needs to do to, in order for him to do this. But immediately they're opposed. Straight away they're mocked and despised. You see, God is he's stirring in, in Nehemiah's heart. And, and that results in these prayers and the way he answers those prayers in this situation is he creates this opportunity for Nehemiah to step out in faith and to act on what he's been praying for. Right? He, he responds to Nehemiah's prayers, but many times God responds by giving us opportunities for faith-filled obedience. You see, Nehemiah, he had to leave behind a very comfortable life. This seemed like a pretty good job in the palace next to the king, fine wine. That was a good life. Why not just be happy there where he is? Why not just represent God well there? No, he gives him this opportunity to step out and obey, to leave behind his comfortable life in order to see the promises of God unfold. And it's actually right there in Nehemiah's name. Nehemiah's name is Nahem Yah. Yah is short for Yahweh, and Nahem means comfort. His name means the comfort of Yahweh. But, but it won't be an earthly comfort in Nehemiah's life. Rather, God is going to use Nehemiah to bring comfort to the people. This is, I think this is the word of warning. Having a, a, a life of prayer, a, a, a life of abiding with the Lord, remaining in his presence, praying without ceasing, staying connected to the vine, John 15 stuff, it, it's not about remaining in a comfortable spot. It, now, I'm not talking about the rest for your soul. There is nowhere more comfortable for your soul than remaining in the presence of God. That's Psalm 23, isn't it? He prepares a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. Even though I'm walking to the valley of the shadow of death, there's, there's the, a comfort for my soul still. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm not talking about like Paul's contentment in Philippians 4, no, no matter how bad things get, he's able to, to be content and rejoice. All through, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hear that. No matter where you are in your life, there's, there's nowhere more restful for your soul than with the Lord. But the scriptures make it abundantly clear that a life of prayer, a life of abiding with God, it's not about being in a blissful, comfortable position in life. Because through our prayers, the Lord often answers us by bringing us to opportunities to step out in faith. These opportunities that, that, that take us out of our comfortable life and possibly even into danger and opposition, just like Nehemiah. These opportunities to do God's will, they're always opportunities to trust Him, even in the face of danger. You see, the, the last thing we want is to be, to, to, the last thing we want to come from learning to be a church that prays, abiding in, in, in Him, is to become comfortable, is to become insular. It should lead us to faith filled action and obedience, right? 
It should lead to mission. It, it, it should lead to laying our lives down for our friends and our neighbors and, and even our enemies. It leads to going in that way. Yes, rest and comfort for our weary souls, but faith-filled steps of obedience to do God's will. As always, it's pointing us to Jesus, okay? Always. Nehemiah is this foreshadow. He's pointing us to Christ. It's Jesus who lived a life of utter dependence on his Father. Jesus whose sole purpose in his life was to lay it down for others, ultimately bearing the sins of the world on the cross. He's the supreme example of living a life of prayer that, that leads to not comfort and bliss, but straight through the valley of the shadow of death in order to do his Father's will and to bring us from life to death. You see how it's pointing us to Jesus? Okay, so if you haven't yet, place your faith in Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are following him, are you wholly dependent on him? I say it this way, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you following Jesus? <laughs> Are you, are you dependent on him? Are you remaining with him? Do you believe him when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing? Do you believe him when he says, I'm gonna follow you all the way with what? Grace and, and mercy. I'm, I'm with you. I'm comforting you. And may we be a church that prays. Um, God has placed us sovereignly right here in 2023 uh, to be part of his kingdom renewal. And he does that through our prayers. And those prayers lead us to stepping out in faith, waiting for him to, to lead us, waiting for him to, 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 to move, but then following him. Let's be a church that prays and walks in faith. And sometimes that will lead us to danger. But he has promised to be with us every step of the way. Would you stand and we'll pray. Lord, we need you. Um, every hour, we need you. Um, Lord, may we be a church that, that knows that um, and doesn't just know that 90 minutes on a Sunday, but let's, let, Lord, may we live that out. Uh, may we live a life of, of just pure dependence on you in, in every aspect of our lives. Um, Lord, these are, your, these are your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your mighty hand. It's the same prayer for us, Lord. And um, these are your elect exiles out there in their, in their jobs as, as cupbearers and as doctors and, and teachers and stay-at-home parents and carers and baristas and artists. Lord, that's, that's, that's our people. Lord, may they be those people um, who have a burden for your glory, who, who have their first concern is for your will to be done, for your glory to go forth, for your kingdom to come. Would you put that in our hearts, Lord? If it's not there, would you put it in our hearts? Would we be people um, who, who see their lives not as our own, Um, but Lord, we are ambassadors for you. Teach us to pray, God. May we be a church that is, is praying at all times um, in, in, in big, desperate, bold, persistent ways, but also just in between sentences and, and just as we're walking with each other down the road. And may we be with you, communing with you, asking you, um, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. It's only because of your sacrifice on the cross, bearing our sins, that we can live this life. 
um, free from fear, um, free from, from our bondage to sin um, and, and following you. Um, keep our eyes on you, Jesus. Um, would you keep us from um, legalism? Would you keep us from thinking that somehow our words and prayer are the answer? Um, it's, it's you, Jesus. It, it's, it's being with you. It's staying connected to you. Would you give that to us, Lord? Um, thank you for this, this table that we gather around every Sunday that reminds us of what you've done and what you've established for us. This, this life that we've been invited into, this family that never ends, all because your body was broken for us, your blood poured out for us. And it's that, Lord, it's your sacrifice that, that heals us, that makes us righteous, that gives us power. Uh, may that be real in our lives, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.